Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, it's Kevin Hart. In this basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back all my game tickets. Plus, tickets for 23 of my biggest fans to cheer me on while I enjoy the game. Your I appreciate the support, people. Eat that pretzel. This will never get old. Use more napkins. Okay, this is starting to get old. Say the tagline. Cash back like a pro. With Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www. 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Saturday, everybody. I hope all of you are having a good weekend so far. I wanted to take a little bit of time today to preview the second round. Because, like I said at the beginning of this playoff run, I thought this was going to be one of the most exciting playoff runs that we've seen in recent NBA history with all of the talent and all of the good teams. And we have 
at least three incredible matchups. Miami Philly's a little weird because Miami's kind of this strange outlier team that doesn't have the level of star power that the other teams have. And Philly's dealing with this Joel Embiid injury thing. But even that uh, series has quite a bit of intrigue. We're going to start with Boston and Milwaukee, which is a playoff series that I'm about as excited for as I've ever been for a playoff series. Kind of similar to that Brooklyn Nets series. It's this concept of the team that is achieving something that I haven't seen a team achieve in a very long time versus, you know, in last round, KD, a player I thought was the best player in the world at the time, although no longer, and a guy in Giannis who is absolutely unequivocally the best player left in this playoff run. So it's kind of like the... The, the age-old concept of the best player on the floor versus the best team and which is going to win. We've had a lot of conversations over the course of this season, pretty much ever since that Suns playoff series with the Lakers last year on our show, where I've been very, very interested to see with the direction the league is going, how, how valuable having the best player on the floor is now compared to the way it was 10 years ago with the way teams can double and recover and how important it is to have guys off the ball that can make plays off the dribble. And Milwaukee in particular is kind of set up in a very traditional sense. They defend in a traditional sense. On the offensive end, they have a lot of guys that are spot-up guys, not necessarily like closeout attacker, higher-end offensive talent type of guys like Boston has. So it's a super, super interesting dynamic going against Boston. Boston, which is, as I have said on this show so many times, I think is a very, very modern, almost ahead of its time type of team construct. So just an unbelievably interesting matchup. So the regular season series between these two teams is completely worthless. They played three of their games back in 2021. And then the fourth matchup between the these two teams took place right before the end of the season in a game where both teams sat out a bunch of important players. So not a whole lot you could take from the season series. However, in 56 minutes this year, when both Tatum and Giannis were on the floor, meaning Boston and Milwaukee with their best players playing, Boston was plus 17. But again, can't take too much from that. A lot of those minutes, all of those minutes actually took place literally in a different calendar year. So it's hard to take too much away from that. I want to start with Milwaukee on offense. So guarding Giannis, we've talked a lot about this on the show. I won't go too deep into it today. But the gist of it is, I expect Giannis to have a great deal of success in his supplementary offense. Offensive rebounding, particularly on his own misses, but just him bulldozing around the rim and being just bigger and stronger than everybody and grabbing offensive rebounds and putbacks. The reason why is, you know, specifically when it comes to offensive rebounding, it's not so much about manpower as it is about one single person being unbox-outable. You know what I mean? So, like, there could be three Celtics around the rim with Giannis, and he's just too big and strong and athletic, and he'll get them all. You know what I mean? So, I think he'll have a lot of supplementary offense that'll lead to better counting stats. I think Giannis's statistical series will appear much better than Kevin Durant's statistical series. However, I expect Boston to give Giannis problems in every a lot of the same ways that Kevin Durant had problems, uh, getting to his spots and catching the ball. Boston did a really good job with KD of disrupting KD on post entries. They had 
a ton of turnovers on post entries because they would have basically Tatum gamble to one side on the post entry and they'd send help on the other side. And even when he did catch, KD would quick turn and there'd be people diving at the ball. So they made it complicated to get KD the basketball. And then they did a really good job of testing KD's handle. Very aggressive with length being like lots of reaching and testing KD's ability to handle the basketball. And KD and Giannis are good ball handlers, but they're tall. And that causes issues when you have guys reaching in because there's just so much more distance that the ball has to travel. So specifically with Giannis, I expect him to have a lot of similar issues to KD turning the basketball over, struggling with handling a ton of traffic, passing out of double teams and things like that. I expect Giannis to struggle there. But with his supplementary offense, with his offensive rebound and transition, there will be a half dozen possessions every game where just because of the way that a a Celtic misses a shot, Giannis will have ahead of steam and no one will be able to stop him and he'll get layups and dunks and free throws and stuff out of that. So Giannis will have a statistically successful uh, series, but I expect him to struggle overall. The other thing that's interesting with Milwaukee on offense is this news with Chris Middleton. So Sham Sharania reported, I believe, two days ago that Chris Middleton will be out for the entire series and potentially even the Eastern Conference Finals should the Bucs make it to that point. This is why that's important. Boston is a pure switch everything team, especially with Rob Williams in the lineup. They really only run drop when Daniel Tice is out there because they don't want to get Daniel Tice into switches, right? So it's going to be a switch everything team, and that inherently turns you into a matchup attacking team. So we know Giannis can attack matchups, but we just discussed all the ways that Boston's going to try to disrupt that. So that leaves it to Drew Holiday as your other guy who can attack matchups. The trouble there is this is where the lack of Chris Middleton is an issue because Chris Middleton last year was an excellent option for Milwaukee to go to to attack matchups, especially as a three-level scorer who's six foot eight and can you know hit back to the basket shots out of the post and hit off the dribble shots from the perimeter and can get to the rim and all of those things, right? So having Chris Middleton out there is a significant loss when you're attacking a switching defense. Not that it might it might not have mattered anyway. You guys know how high I am on Boston. I probably would have picked Boston to win this series regardless. But with Chris Middleton out, it makes it significantly tougher. Milwaukee on defense. I wanted to just kind of give you guys a couple of uh, uh, of really, really basic stats to demonstrate just how how dominant this Boston team has been. You know, there uh, we talked about this in a pod last week, but I don't know if it's the anti-Celtics bias uh, that you know, kind of similar to the anti-Lakers bias, which is just natural in the NBA fan base. They're the two most successful fan bases, and they're the two loudest fan bases, which kind of inherently makes them unlikable to everybody. But the thing is is that has poisoned people's minds into thinking that the sweep of the Brooklyn Nets was about Brooklyn being terrible more so than Boston being great. When the reality is, is since January 23rd, when all of this took out for Bo- took off for Boston, Boston is 32 and 7 since January 23rd. They have the best offense in the league, the best defense in the league. They're 5 points per 100 possessions better than everybody on defense. They're 7.5 points better overall per 100 possessions than everybody in the league. So they're, they've been unbelievably dominant. So it's poisoning people's minds and making them think that, you know, the first round series was a fluke based on matchups and KD and Kyrie, you know, pissing down their leg when that's not what happened. They ran into the best team in the NBA. So why do I bring that up right now? Because we're talking about 
Boston on offense against Milwaukee. And I bet you if you asked the vast majority of casual fans, they would think of Boston as not a very good offense. But again, and this is the important detail, we are in a 39-game stretch here where they've been the best offense in all of basketball. Just in this postseason run, Boston has the best half-court offense and the best transition offense, according to Cleaning the Glass. This is an unbelievably good offensive team. And specifically with Milwaukee, we've talked about how Milwaukee struggles because their defense is set up to take away the paint. So they attack specific matchups, teams like Chicago that kind of live inside the three-point line, they're going to have a lot of success. But against teams that generate quality three-point shots and can knock them down, they struggle. Again, this is important to understand. Milwaukee's defense this season was average on a points per 100 possessions allowed basis despite the fact that they were dominant in shutting off the paint and dominant on the defensive glass. It was strictly because their defense would overhelp and give up a ton of threes on the back end. They were not good at rotating around to shooters. One last stat I'm going to give you on this to kind of seal the deal here. Since January 23rd, this stretch with Boston, Boston is fifth in three-point volume, so in total three-point attempts per game compared to their, uh, the rest of the league, in third in three-point percentage. So this is the opposite of the Chicago situation. This is a team that is great at generating wide open threes and great at knocking them down. So even if we throw away everything that I've loved about this Boston team on the defensive end, which is where I derive my confidence in this matchup, it's the other end of the floor where Boston has an advantage as well against a very specific Milwaukee weakness. And so in this case, I'm picking Boston in five. I think Milwaukee will get one game on their home floor, game three or game four. We'll see. But I expect this to be a dominant Boston Celtics victory. I expect Giannis to struggle despite having better counting stats than KD. And you just need to keep it simple, guys. Since January 23rd, Boston is the best team in the league. Best on offense, best on defense. They demonstrated in the first round against Brooklyn that they're one of the best defensive teams that we have ever seen. Milwaukee is missing their second most important player and arguably one of their most important matchup attackers in Chris Middleton. So just simply on the surface, we know that Boston is a better basketball team at a health advantage in this series. To be clear, this is how much I think Boston is a favorite. If Milwaukee were to win this series, it would be an accomplishment for Giannis on par with like 2007 LeBron knocking out the Pistons. It would be one of the greatest accomplishments not associated with an NBA title in NBA history. That's how confident I am in Boston. That's the challenge that's in front of Giannis. If he can pull it off, I will have nothing but props for the guy. But that's the type of of situation that he's facing here. This is an all-time great defense in a Boston Celtics team that has been clearly better than everybody else. And Giannis is without his co-star. It's going to be tough. He's capable of it. Definitely give Milwaukee a chance, but I'm picking Boston in five. All right, let's move on to Golden State and Memphis. This is, I think, the second most interesting series in the first round. Another series where the regular season, it's tough to take things from because especially the, they had matchups very early in the season where they were healthy, but you know Memphis wasn't as dominant back then as they are now. And then as we get closer to the end of the season, you've got a game where Draymond Green w- was not playing. And then you have a game where Steph Curry and Draymond Green did not play. So again, these regular season series is make it extremely difficult to predict because guys are just missing games, which is a whole other conversation we need to have about the NBA and stars missing games. But 
let's do our best to try to get as close of an indication of what we think these teams are going to do based on what we did see this year. So again, like I did with the Celtics Bucks series, there were 94 minutes this year where the Warriors and the Grizzlies played each other and Steph and Ja were both on the floor together. In those minutes, the Warriors were plus 24 in 94 minutes. Excellent on the defensive end, pretty good on the offensive end. <clears throat> uh, in, th- in those specific matchups between with the Warriors, Ja Morant's drives, according to the NBA's tracking data, were slightly down over his regular season averages. His restricted area makes were down compared to his regular season averages. So a couple of things there that are indicative of the fact that uh, Golden State has had more success guarding Jaw than the rest of the league has. However, it gets complicated because that's kind of a team effort thing, and that can get a little bit uh, that can get a little tricky in the playoffs when coaches have more time to scout. And there are perimeter defenders for Golden State that are going to struggle guarding Jaw. So let's start with Memphis on offense for that reason. So a couple things. Containing Jaw is going to be the biggest predicament of the series. We talk about with Memphis, their biggest issue is they don't have half-court creators outside of Jaw. Jaron Jackson Jr. is uh, can attack matchups, but he struggles in traffic because he doesn't see the floor well. Desmond Bain is more of a slasher, a guy who can attack off of advantages. He's not a guy that's fantastic at creating his own shot or creating shots for other people. So Golden State will be able to key in on Jaw. The trick is a lot of Golden State lineups, namely even the death lineup, the, uh, the death lineup number three or whatever it is with Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry in the backcourt, none of those three guys can keep John Morant in front. And so there will be potential for Memphis to play Golden State out of some of their favorite lineups. And as a result of that, it may put them in a predicament where they have to go with Gary Payton Jr. a lot more. Gary Payton Jr. played amazingly well in Game 5 against Denver, but he's not the same level of offensive player as a Jordan Poole or as a Klay Thompson. So those are those trade-offs. You get a guy like Gary Payton Jr. to have a better chance of containing John Morant, but the flip side is, is you suffer some losses on the offensive end of the floor. That will be tricky. However, Golden State, I do think, will have more capability to help and rotate out of that, especially with Draymond on the back line. Where I get most concerned for uh, uh, for Golden State in this series is Memphis attacking the offensive glass. So, uh, in half-court settings this season, so just in the half-court this season, Memphis rebounded a third of their own misses, literally 33%. They're the best offensive rebounding team in the league. We talked a lot about how they stole games from Minnesota in the first round, particularly with Brandon Clark, but they stole games from Memphis or from Minnesota in the first round just by crashing the offensive glass. We specifically saw Denver give Golden State a lot of issues attacking the offensive glass. Main, main reason why, this is not a big Warriors team. They're only big when they play Kevon Looney next to Draymond with Andrew Wiggins, and even then they're not huge. They're just big enough to hang. And then there comes a whole bunch of offensive issues when you go with Kevon Looney in that regard as well. There's a trade-off, just like we were talking about with Gary Payton Jr. So their ability to keep Memphis off the glass is going to be an issue, just like it was with Denver, and it's going to give Memphis a lot of extra possessions, and that can be an issue. And then lastly, with Memphis on offense, I worry with Dre, uh, Draymond Green with fatigue and foul trouble. So kind of like we saw in game five against Denver and just in general over the course of that series, Draymond started to wear down, not because he's not capable, but because there's so little depth in the front court for Golden State. It was a need they never addressed this season. I don't know if they just thought James Wiseman was coming back or if they just didn't think they'd need it, but they never addressed their front court need for depth. And as a result, 
there is a ton on Draymond Green's plate. And so all it takes is Jaw flying into the lane a couple times to start a game or Jaron Jackson Jr. attacking on you know quick catch and rip through moves to pick up a couple of quick fouls on Draymond and he could be in trouble. And then fatigue, like we said, over the course of the series could be an issue. So front court depth is going to be the biggest area where Memphis has an advantage, wearing down Draymond, getting him in foul trouble and crashing the hell out of the offensive glass. It's going to put Golden State in a predicament where they have to play bigger players, a lot more Otto Porter Jr., a lot more Gary Payton Jr. as a guy crashing the on the on the wings to help defensive rebound that could then lead to the cascading effect of causing Golden State problems on offense. So that's going to be the tricky part. Now, moving to Golden State on offense. First of all, this is where I think Golden State has their best advantage. During the regular season, Memphis was a better half-court offense team, according to Cleveland Glass, but obviously the postseason and the regular season are two completely different things. And you saw Minnesota give Memphis a ton of issues with their dribble containment, which was their best skill during the regular season, and it gave Memphis issues in the half-court. During just this postseason, the Warriors are averaging 123.4 points per half-court possession which is 10.5 points better than Memphis managed in the first round against Minnesota. Minnesota's a better defense than Denver, so there's some context there. But I do trust the uh, Golden State's decision-making in the half-court more than I trust Memphis's decision-making in the half-court. And this kind of takes me to that Minnesota series, which I thought was a really, really strange series. Because in six games, and we picked Memphis in six, we got... I think we got six of the eight first-round series is correct. We were wrong about Brooklyn, and we were wrong about Philly. But that was one of the series we were right about. However, the tricky thing was, is in the six games, Minnesota had controlling leads, second half, like significant advantages in the second half in five of the six games. So there's a bunch of different ways to look at that. Some of that is the game getting helter-skelter in transition and Minnesota having guys that aren't great at closing games, which we talked about. But part of it is, and this is something I pointed out on the show, Memphis flat out came out flat, like four or five times in that series. That is a weird thing for a team that has expectations and hasn't been to the mountaintop before. And part of this is like, like we always talk about, you have to build up scar tissue over the years of having hard losses and pain and heartbreak that cause you to fear losing so much that you don't come out flat. And Memphis hasn't had that heartache yet. And here's the thing against Minnesota, it just falls. It it makes you fall behind and you can recover. Against a team like Golden State, if you come out flat, you'll get beat because you're not coming back against them when they get a 20-point advantage against you. They've been there too many times, right? They've had too much pain and suffering over the course of their decade of basketball. They know what it takes. So a lot of Memphis's sloppiness and general just like youth is going to be something that I think is going to cause them problems in this series. Another thing is I'm going to be really curious to see how Uh, specifically how Steve Kerr finds ways to attack John Morant because Golden State is not a dribble drive team really that much. Steph and Clay do drive to the basket off of attention from their three-point shooting, but every team in the league kind of gives up those types of drives because they're pressing up on the shot. I'm really curious to see if Jordan Poole in particular, because he is their best burst guard. He's their best quick first step beat people to the basket type of guard. How much they can use Jordan Poole to attack attack John Morant. How willing is Memphis to give up switches to put John Morant specifically on Jordan Poole. Even further, can Golden State play Jordan Poole enough? They had to bench him in the fourth quarter of that game five against Denver because he was struggling defensively and he was struggling on the defensive glass. Well, 
that could be an issue in this series as well, like we were talking about with trying to guard Jaw. So that having Jordan Poole out there on the offensive end, a lot of that has to do with how well he holds up on the defensive end. Overall, my my brain and everything that I know about these teams tells me that Golden State should win and win easy, that they should win in five games. But I think in general, the length and athleticism and size of Memphis in conjunction with the pace that they play at, in conjunction with the way that they attack the offensive glass, I think there's a lot of potential to wear Golden State down and drag this series out. And so I'm picking Golden State but I'm picking them in seven. I think this is going to be a long series. I think physical advantages are going to keep Memphis in the series as well as home court advantage, but I am going to favor the veteran team that is better and better with execution in the end, so I'm picking Golden State in seven. All right, we're going to rip through these last two series pretty quickly. I do find them interesting, just less interesting than the first two. So let's start with Philly-Miami. Obviously, the Embiid thing makes it super complicated. That was a really strange report yesterday. Like, you could interpret that as Embiid's going to sit out the rest of the playoffs. You could also interpret it as he just has a concussion and he could be back by Monday, right? So we don't know what to say. So for the sake of – here's the thing. If Embiid's out, Miami's winning the series. So we don't even have to get into that if Embiid's going to miss the playoffs. But let's quickly break down what the series would look like if Embiid did play, because that would be the only the only scenario in which this series would be worth watching and worth breaking down. So let's start with Miami on offense. Specifically, what worries me with this situation is Embiid's ability to hang out around the rim. Toronto did a really nice job with their five-out kind of drive-and-kick attack of making Embiid cover a lot of ground on the perimeter. But Dame Adebayo, in the way that he's utilized in their system, hangs out a lot around the high post, kind of like Jokic does, does a lot of dribble handoffs and ball screens. But he can't shoot. That is going to lead to a dynamic where Joel Embiid can camp around the basket. That will be the biggest indicator of this series in Miami's ability to score. Can they force Joel Embiid to cover ground in the perimeter? So much of that will have to do with will Philly's guards and wings do a good job of chasing guys over the top of all their dribble handoff actions? Because if they struggle, if Bam Adebayo gets Duncan Robinson and Tyler Harrow and all these guys, a bunch of, and Gabe Vincent and, and Max Strews wide open looks flying off of these dribble handoffs, then Embiid has to come out to show on the dribble handoffs. If Embiid has to come out and show on the dribble handoffs, now Joel Embiid is further away from the basket, which opens up opportunities for everybody to get to the rim for Miami. So a huge part of this specific matchup is going to be how successful is Philly at keeping Embiid around the rim. A couple other things. Uh, Jimmy Butler's health. He had knee issues. He missed game five of the Atlanta uh, the Atlanta Hawks series. How available is he going to be? How successful is he going to be? That's going to be the interesting wrinkle. Miami's best chance to win this series is if uh, Jimmy Butler is healthy and like capable of doing the same types of things that he did in the bubble playoff run when he was so dominant. Then lastly, with Miami on offense, how successful will they be attacking James Harden and Tyrese Maxey? Philly has great defensive players on a lot of spots on the floor, Joel Embiid's great defensive player. Tobias Harris is very good. You know, uh, uh, Matisse Thybul is very good, although he has offensive issues that lead him to having trouble playing. Danny Green is a pretty dependable defensive player in the playoffs. But Tyrese Maxey and James Harden, they struggle specifically with... Uh, Tyrese Maxey kind of reminds me of 
a lot of young defensive guards, like there are possessions where he looks great, but then there are possessions where he gets lost. It's kind of part of the deal with being young. And then James Harden just doesn't care enough to put in the the work and he's not mobile enough to contain people on the perimeter. He only does well defending post mismatches. So how successful will Miami be attacking t- uh, James Harden and Tyrese Maxey will go a long way towards Miami's ability to score. Philly on offense. There, there are two things specifically that I wanted to look at here. Can Bam Adebayo cover Joel Embiid in single coverage because if he can it diminishes the shot quality for everybody else on Philly and makes the entire game significantly harder James Harden has less room to operate Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey don't get as many of the wide open opportunities that they get to build their confidence and build their rhythm give them the ability to go off in more uh, 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 contested situations so Bam's ability to guard Embiid huge swing factor for the series you'll know pretty quickly in game one if he's up to that challenge and then last and this is the biggest reason I'm picking Philly to win the series in six by the way if Joel Embiid is healthy. And the biggest reason why I'm going that way is there one there's one area in that first round that I vastly underestimated. We talked a lot about this in the show that we did the other day on on Thursday night, the diff- when we were talking about the difference between shooters and makers and how confident guys like Tobias Harris and Danny Green and Tyrese Maxey are when they get open looks because they are makers, not shooters. They're very very good shooters that are confident in their shot. Well, I I think I've like resoundingly underestimated how much shooting Philly has. And a huge part of what made that Toronto series as dominant of a performance as it was for Philly was all this attention devoted to Embiid. The ball would just get swinging around. Even if Embiid blew the first, you know, double team read, it would be swing, swing, and there would be somebody with some type of advantage. And Danny Green and Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey are just going to knock down these shots. They were 11 for 23 in game five or in game six up in Toronto. That amount of shooting, I think, is going to make Miami pay. Miami, by the way, just like Milwaukee, is another team that gives up a ton of open threes. Now, they actually lead the league in the half court in three-point. Milwaukee overall gave up the most threes, but uh, Miami in the half court gave up, according to Cleaning the Glass, gave up the most three-point attempts. But they also gave up the worst three-point percentage. So Spolstra is very smart about leaving guys open believing the right guys open but the trick is like I just said I'm not sure Philly has a right guy to leave open except for Matisse Thibel right when they're with their best lineups and you have James Harden and Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris and Danny Green there's just not a good guy to leave open there so if Miami's going to give up a ton of open threes and a ton of help on defense that specific team is equipped to make them pay I think this is going to be a team a series that gets ugly and is pretty low scoring I think both teams are going to struggle to some extent scoring in the half court, but I think the advan- the I think Philly's Embiid advantage, meaning they have the best opportunity to compromise the defense consistently by forcing double teams in conjunction with their overall shooting and the fact that Miami's defense is set up to give up three-point shots, I think that gives Philly the advantage in this series and I'm picking them to win in 6 possibly a little bit earlier. It's just a home court advantage thing that throws it off for me going with Philly and six really quickly. Let's talk about Dallas and Phoenix. Another series where we can't take too much away from the regular season. Luca only played in one game against Phoenix. It was at home. Phoenix dominated in one. They were uh, 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 Dallas actually led the first three quarters and the Phoenix was unbelievably dominant in the fourth quarter. They won the fourth quarter 35 to 19. We'll get into that in just a second. In that game, Luca was nine for 23, two for nine from three, eight assists with eight turnovers and was a minus seven. 
disastrous fourth quarter. We saw some issues with Dallas's fourth quarter offense against Utah. It does become predictable, but part of the issue there was Rudy Gobert is very, very difficult to score against. And for all the things we said about Utah's defense, they did lock in and get a lot of stops in crunch time. They just got themselves killed throughout the rest of the game. Will DeAndre Ayton provide the same type of deterrence as Gobert? We're going to see. We're going to see if he can guard Luka out on the perimeter. Another big thing is going to be how how willing is Phoenix to give up switches with Chris Paul and Devin Booker onto uh, uh, onto uh, Luka because Luka has always had a ton of success against smaller players because of his ability to use his body to shield guys away from contact. So to make a long story short, I expect... Luca and Dallas to have a good amount of success against Phoenix's defense. Luca's too smart, and there are matchups to attack. Phoenix does run a pretty traditional defensive scheme. Luca, I think, is going to feast on that in a lot of settings. So much of it is going to come down to how often can he get Chris Paul and Devin Booker in single coverage. Moving on to Phoenix on offense. This is where Chris Paul becomes so devastating. We talked a lot about how Dallas's defense is excellent. They make up for a lack of defensive personnel with absurd effort and an excellent scheme. But there's a little, a good amount of gimmickiness to that, right? There's, there are a lot of options on the floor to attack. Chris Paul is going to find a way to, to put Dallas in some predicaments defensively. They're going to want to switch a lot of the screen and roll actions. But again, do you like Maxine Kleva in, in a matchup against Chris Paul in isolation on the perimeter? Do you like Chris Paul in isolation again? Or do you like Luka Doncic in isolation against Chris Paul on the perimeter? Like, I don't think Phoenix is going to have any issues scoring. And then a huge issue, especially when we're talking about switching, against Utah, Dallas could get away with switching smaller defenders onto Gobert because Gobert is like one of the worst matchup attacking bigs in the entire league. We've talked a lot about it this season. I think he only had 10 made field goals in the entire regular season against switches. It, it might even have been worse than that. I can't remember. I just vaguely remember seeing that stat somewhere on Twitter. But DeAndre Ayton, significantly better kind of a monster attacking switches when Chris Paul pulls the big away and the guard gets switched onto Aiton. Chris Paul is relentless on hitting Aiton and Aiton just goes to that quick little, you know, a half hook that he hits in the lane and he hits it all the time. He's got one of the best hook shots in all of basketball right now. So that's going to put them in a bunch of predicaments. And then lastly, uh, Dallas really struggled guarding uh, Boyan Bogdanovich. We talked a lot about this on the show, that big rim pressuring wing, especially against switching defenses, can just get great looks all over the floor. Well, Devin Booker is not as big as Boyan Bogdanovich, but he is similar in the way that he can attack shorter mismatches. There will be spots on the uh, guys on the floor for Dallas, like guys like Reggie Bullock, guys like you know uh, uh, Jalen Brunson. There are going to be a lot of guys. Spencer Dinwiddie's another one. There are going to be a lot of guys out there that Devin Booker is going to feel comfortable attacking in isolation, kind of similar to the way Bogdanovich did, and he's going to get a lot of good looks. I this is another one where my head is telling me Phoenix is going to dominate. My head is telling me sweep or five games that Phoenix is going to win, but I have too much respect for Luka. I think he's a top-tier superstar. I just have a feeling he's going to find a way to drag this series out, so I'm going Phoenix in six. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. I sincerely appreciate your guys' support. We will be back for a live show tomorrow right after there's Bucks celtics at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Warriors-Grizzlies at 12.30 Pacific Standard Time. We'll be going live 
right after the Grizzlies-Warriors game. We'll be doing live shows on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week, and then there are no games on Thursday. So be prepared for live shows the next four days. As always, I appreciate your guys' support, and I will see you tomorrow. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything. Even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.